Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 6? You know, that invitation that we just sang, come and behold him, is a call to look at God, to look at him until you see him as he is and understand his nature, to behold him in a way that begins to exclude, if not expel outright, other things that would occupy your vision. That requires faith. And it's actually a strange invitation in one sense that says, look at something you can't actually see. It's really hard for us as human beings because these physical eyes are continually receiving light waves and then you're uh, remarkably, those electrical impulses that go from the photoreceptors in your eyes are turned into uh, brain waves and you form thoughts, impressions, And so what we see with these eyes often becomes a distraction, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. But the invitation to behold this God is not of a physical seeing primarily, although there are evidences of him, and we'll touch on that for a little bit this morning. No, it's a spiritual work. It's a work where you have to open the eyes of your heart and because a lot of us realize, well, I, I can't fully engage the eyes of my heart unless I have help. That's exactly right. Aren't you glad there's a God in heaven who empowers us to see from our hearts? A lot of things capture the vision of our hearts on days like these. I'm well aware of the fact that some of you have really significant cares and concerns, and in one sense you might say that the eyes of your heart are occupied with some, some really important earthly matters. Some of you have relationships that are in deep trouble at the moment, and it, it, in a sense, it's all you can see. It was hard for you to sing. You were, you were singing out the words and maybe even staring at the screen, but the eyes of your heart were looking beyond the screen. You were seeing things of a spiritual nature that are really hard for you. Well, we are called in the word of God to behold him. And Isaiah 6 is one of those compelling passages, and we're actually going to take a little time this morning to work our way, not just through these eight verses, but I I want you to see the, the greater context, because all of that is important to understand what Isaiah himself might have been seeing at this particular moment, the things that occupied his mind, his heart, his imagination. And God's about to step in in an extraordinary way, and and there's good reason to believe he's actually a fairly young man at this point. Some even say that he might be as young as 18, 19, in that range. And God's about to create a whole different vision for him than the one he's been occupied with because there's important work for him to do, and it's a work that he's going to do for decades through great difficulty, through great struggle, in the midst of a a world scene that was not much different than the world scene we're all looking at right now and saying, oh my, among other things. I'm so grateful that there are passages like Isaiah 6 in 
God's word because they're not simply given that we might extract a few uh, principles and kind of go on our way and say, well, I should be a better person or I should be a better citizen of this nation or I should treat my family better or work harder on the job. All of those things may be true, but there's something even greater, some of, something of greater weight that needs to occupy the bandwidth of your soul this morning, the, the spectrum of your vision. And that's exactly what God is gifting Isaiah with. Follow along as I read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Would you join me in praying? Our God and Father, the words that have been recorded for us are alive and powerful. They are not even simply the record of what Isaiah saw from his heart, from his pen, but they are the living words of the living God. There are so many things that compete for our vision on this day. There are relationships and responsibilities. There are cares and concerns and global currents and movements right now that are of such great weight that we are in danger of expelling you from our hearts and souls, from our vision And we ask, lest we succumb to that temptation, that you would reverse that order and that you would expel from our hearts and souls, from our spiritual vision, everything that would compete for the space that you alone are worthy to occupy. Spirit of God, would you come and would you speak truth into our souls? Would you... Pull away the scales that keep us from seeing what we ought to see. Give us a vision of this king in his glory that we, like Isaiah, might be sustained for decades to come in eternally significant living and service. And I ask that on this day you would begin to create such a powerful vision in each heart here that we would never be the same that we would never return to those things that have long occupied 
our attention and imagination and that we would devote ourselves fully to you, whatever you would call us to do. And we pray now to the end that we were singing that you would use all of this, use us to whatever ends you ordain in order that your kingdom would come in its fullness as it has been purposed. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's so much loaded into that first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, that we have to just pull it apart and, and go back into some of the historical books and records that are included in the Old Testament that we can understand what a, a monumental moment this was for Isaiah and for the nation that he loved dearly. If you could go back, and I'm just going to summarize a few things but you would find both in history and in the Old Testament record that that was a particular moment of international tension between the nations. There's a rising superpower knocking on Israel's door at this particular moment. Under the rule of Tiglath-Pileser III, Assyria was coming to power and would shortly become more than a nemesis to God's people. It's also a day of national turmoil for within this nation that God had rescued from Egypt hundreds of years before, there has been a division. It has radically uh, altered both the, the daily life and even the trajectory of the people of God. Israel is in decline. They have sustained uh, really wicked rule under two particular kings at this moment, Jeroboam II, who according to 2 Kings 14, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then close on his heels, a king named Menahem, who also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah, who is a, a separated group of the children of Israel, has been under the rule of Uzziah for 52 years. And the first 42 years, in many ways, were a golden era for Israel, rivaling almost Solomon's reign. Uzziah was blessed of the Lord. It was a golden era of military might. It was a golden era even of spiritual leadership. Second Chronicles 26.5 tells us that Uzziah himself set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And if you read a little further, you would see the, the three words, God helped him. What a king. What a moment in Judah's history. It was also a season of prophetic blessing. In addition to the, the, the onset of Isaiah's prophetic ministry here, as we're encountering it in chapter 6, the, the famous prophets Jonah and Amos and Hosea have been used by God to give the word of the Lord. But Uzziah's final 10 years of life and rule were, rule were tarnished by two things. First of all, 2 Kings 15 tells us that the high places were not taken away. So there's a competing spiritual interest in Israel. Idolatry permeates the daily life of so many people. And 2 Kings records that the people still sacrificed and made offerings on those high places. But here's a second thing, and this is where Uzziah's life begins to unravel and the, the kingdom itself is threatened. 2 Chronicles 26.16 tells us that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and specifically, listen to this, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now that's a priest's assignment, and it's reserved only for priests. 
We don't know all that went into this other than that Uzziah grew proud and apparently thought, well, I'm, I'm a well-respected king. God has been with me. Why shouldn't I have this privilege? So he enters the temple of his own choice. And verse 17 tells us that Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. Then Uzziah was angry. That response is the manifestation of his pride. For a man who walks in the fear of God, when confronted by those who love God and even love him, will respond in humility. But he doesn't respond in humility. He responds in anger, the Scripture says. Now the author of Second Chronicles goes on to record, now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. I mean, this is defilement, both physical and spiritual. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now, there's one other scripture that's important for us to understand. I think everybody here would understand that a dread disease like this, which was highly contagious, would call for this individual to be removed from his normal living quarters. But think about this. He's the king of Judah. No longer can he enter the sanctuary of the Lord, even at the appointed times. But he can't occupy his throne as kings should occupy their thrones. He can't interact with, his, uh, with the subjects of his kingdom as kings should do with their subjects. His entire life has been altered. But the book of Leviticus also gives us one other important piece of information to keep in mind, and this is critical to where we're headed in Isaiah 6. Leviticus 13 records the protocol for those with leprosy. And while they remain in that state of defilement and illness, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, for he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now picture the mighty Uzziah, dressed in tattered clothes, hair unkept, covering his upper lip, crying out as he would enter the presence of others or they would come maybe to drop off a little food to check on him but he would cry unclean unclean dwelling outside the assembly that's why i would say it's not only a moment of international tension with tiglath pileser knocking on the door it's not only a day of 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 national tension a divided kingdom and 
people vying for power within, but it's a moment uh, of genuine crisis of sovereignty. It's a pitiful moment in so many ways. The first 42 years of Uzziah's royal rule and the golden age that Judah enjoyed marred by his pride. And the final 10 years he lives in that kind of condition as a leper. So Uzziah passed his final days spiritually unclean, personally isolated, and royally ineffective. His son Jotham steps in. He's the co-regent, but that's really where the, the power lay. So to read that phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, it's just the final step of a decade of decline. And Uzziah's leprosy is a metaphor for the state of the nation itself, fully corrupted by their spiritual idolatry, fully corrupted by their faithlessness to their God, the God who had rescued them and given them such glorious promises, fully corrupted and unfit to come into the presence of God. Now, if you pause for a moment and you begin to draw some parallel lines of thought between where Isaiah found himself in the nation of, of Judah, I think we could start saying, yeah, we understand the crisis of leadership in our own nation. Yeah, we understand what it feels like to live in a, a divided country. We understand what it's like to live at this moment in history where the international tension is everywhere. We're not even sure who our friends and enemies are anymore. In many ways, it's a scary moment. In many ways, it's a, it's a, a moment of great struggle. And I'm sure that Isaiah, like so many others of his day, were wondering, what's next for us? And for those who have a heart to serve the Lord, as I believe Isaiah did, we sometimes wonder what will sustain our faith in these dis- difficult moments. What will fuel our vision for ministry and service here locally and our guests who are here from other parts of our country? What will sustain and fuel your ministry in the years that are to come? Some of you are very young, and you hear your parents and grandparents talk, and if you're really honest, at minimum, it kind of disturbs you, but even greater than that, you might be really fearful. Those are great questions to ask, and there are powerful answers in the text. And what God does for Isaiah as a young man that he's about to call into what probably is among the greatest prophetic ministries ever given to a human being. What God does for Isaiah is, first of all, to create a a powerful, clear vision of who his God is. And that's where we come to the next phrase. In the middle of all that chaos and uncertainty, in the middle of all that turmoil, All the spiritual decline and defilement. Look at the next phrase. I saw the Lord. That's no small thing. It's a vision unlike any of us have ever had. He refers to the Lord, first of all, with that Old Testament Hebrew title, Adonai. It speaks of God as the sovereign one, master of all. And notice with me, if you will, we're going to move really quickly through this description here, but the glory of Adonai's dominion is displayed as he is the one sitting upon heaven's throne. It's not Judah's throne. It's not Assyria's throne. It is the throne that sits at the center of the universe. Here is the sovereign one who is the supreme king and judge. 
He also sees the glory of Adonai's exaltation, for that is evidence in that next phrase. Look at his position. He's high and lifted up. What a contrast to Uzziah. This king that Isaiah is seeing is not isolated in a house at the edge of the universe somewhere. He is not, he is not isolated from his subjects. Uh, rather, he is seated exactly where he needs to be, and he's lifted up above all others in sovereign power, unrivaled, unchallenged, unparalleled, unsurpassed. There is no king like this king. The glory of Adonai's eminence is unequaled. Look at the next phrase. The train of his robe fills the temple. Now, that's a little peculiar to us, but a, a sovereign's robes were often designed and fabricated to evidence the weight of his glory, the weight of his authority. And here, the train of, of this king's robe so fill the temple that you have a sense that there's no room for anybody else to stand. Again, what a contrast to the tattered robes of the recently deceased leper king. We might have hoped that Isaiah would describe for us the radiance of the king's face or the flash of his eyes, but so pervasive and overpowering is the glory of this king that Isaiah cannot lift his gaze above the hem of the royal robes. This is Adonai. And the glory of Adonai's attendants also reflect his greatness, for around him, Isaiah describes, stood the seraphim. And, and you know, the, the term seraphim literally means the burning ones, glowing with the radiance of God's glory. Beautifully, these powerful and mysterious creatures reflect the burning glory of Adonai and standing ever ready to serve the Holy One of Israel. The six wings, Isaiah tells us, represent several things. And let me fill this in for you. With two, they cover their faces, he says. That speaks of their reverence. They cannot bear to look upon this great king. With two, they cover their feet. That speaks of their humility. They know that they are in the presence of the Almighty. And with two, they fly. It speaks of their ready service, hovering, waiting for the next command that they would be dispatched in service to this great king. This is what Isaiah sees, and it begins to fill his eyesight, Adonai, in his glory. Look at verse 3, for Isaiah hears the eternal witness to God's holiness. Now he describes what he hears in the throne room one called to the other. That's an antiphonal cry. It would be as if like the, this side of our worship team sang one stanza, and in reply, this side of our worship team cries back. So an antiphonal cry. And what is that cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So thankful for what Stephen already shared. I didn't ask him to, but you would have thought he might have read a little piece of my notes here this morning. When he paused to explain God's holiness, he was, he was dead on. We think of holiness often as purity, and it includes that. But holiness is a little broader than that. It means he's absolutely unique. He's one of a kind. He's separate from all other things and beings, and that would include separate from sin, separate from corruption, separate from leprosy and defilement. When you read the Old Testament, you find a number of things described as holy. There's a holy day that God gives his people, the Sabbath. 
He's separated that day from the other six. He's made it unique and distinct. Or the inner room of the earthly temple where God manifests his presence and would appear to the high priest once a year. It's called the Holy of Holies, a room that is unlike any other room on planet Earth. These are merely reflections of the nature and character of God and the seraphim cry of it day and night reminding all who enter the throne of heaven that God is one of a kind, absolutely distinct. And in the context, again, that Isaiah's been living, in the context we live, God's holiness is his distinction from the corrupting pride of kings like Uzziah and presidents like Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And one of the great griefs of our souls is the arrogance that describes and characterizes so many politicians not just in our nation, but in our world. God's holiness is what makes him distinct from wicked dictators like Vladimir Putin, but it's also what makes him distinct from ordinary people like us. Because I, like you, wrestle with my pride every day. Will I be first? Will I serve? Will I worship God? Worship my plans, my ambitions. God's holiness is his separation from the immoral character and lifestyles of people groups like Judah who said, well, we'll worship God part-time, we'll worship our idols as well, and so they integrate that worship or syncretize it. We do similar things. We're happy to come to church on Sunday, but just let me live the way I want to live Monday through Saturday. That's not holy living. God's holiness is his existence in a ruling class all of his own, And that holiness compels these burning ones of heaven's court to cry night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah uses a second name, the Lord of hosts. In your English version, some of you notice that Lord is in all caps. That means it's his special name, Yahweh, the name by which he revealed himself long ago as the I Am the self-existent one. How could any being be self-existent? Every other creature that has ever had life came into existence. This is the God who has always been. You say, that doesn't make sense to me. You're exactly right because you are a finite creature as I am and the finite will never fully comprehend and understand the infinite But here, the name itself reveals truth about this great one. This name, which is ascribed to God over 240 times in our Bibles, speaks of his sovereignty over the host of heaven, for he's the Lord of hosts, or some of your translations might even say heavenly armies. That might be a little too specific. It just means he's he's Lord over, over it all. He's not one of many gods. The burning ones are not attributing sovereignty to him above a pantheon of gods. They worship him in his exclusive and absolute identity as the one true God. And later in the same prophecy, Isaiah 43, verse 10, God will record through his prophet, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I'm it. And then Isaiah records their words, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's particularly good news for servants of God like Isaiah who struggle to understand and endure, just like you and I do, who wrestle with genuine fears and substantial doubts because of what we see taking place in the world. 
So whether it be our leaders who are in decline, as Uzziah had been in decline, and we're not sure about the next guy who's going to step into the throne, or the the, the rival powers next door to us, and it was Assyria for them, and we keep hearing about you know, China trying to take over the world or this nation or, or that group of people or that political interest, and our hearts can be stirred up with all kinds of things that don't seem glorious at all but seem deadly and terrifying and overwhelming to us. But these seraphim testified to the fact that the earth, despite all of its corruption, despite all of its brokenness, is a place that remains full of the glory of this great God. That's why it's important for us to set aside one day of the week to get our bearings again. The Word reminds us of His greatness, and the Word even calls us in a number of passages, and Psalm 19 is one of those favorites. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's a reminder to us, get outside, look into the night sky, look across the valley. We even have an opportunity this afternoon, Matt will tell you more about it, where, where we're going to be up in the canyon together, we're going to actually have a little Sunday evening service at Storm Mountain Amphitheater, and if you've never been there, I cannot wait to sing with you all in, in that uh, divinely designed uh, worship space. But just being in that canyon is a reminder that there's a great God, that canyon is glorious. We announce the birth of of the Smith's second daughter this morning. And you think of what a, a miracle that is for life to come into the world, how God has so fabulously designed all of that. So from the first cry of a newborn baby or even gazing under a microscope uh, at the helix of human DNA, from the macro to the micro, this place is full of the glory of God. But if you're not looking through the right set of eyes, all you'll see is death and doom and destruction and chaos and gas is what it is and groceries are so expensive and uh, Isaiah is coming under the power of this eternal witness to the weight of God's holiness. Look at verse four. He not only sees and hears, but now he feels the power of God's presence. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, it's just complete sensory overload at this point. Like the appearance of God on Mount Sinai when he rescued Israel, the mountain was covered in smoke, or his appearance in the tabernacle as it was finished, or Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. The smoke is the visible sign that God is here, and God himself fills the space of the universe. Now look at where that takes Isaiah. He's not thinking any longer about, oh, we lost a great king, Uzziah. Who's going to take his place? What's Tiglath-Pileser going to do? Will Israel and Judah ever be divided again? Could this nation ever be one? No, at this particular moment, there's a confession that, that you just sense just, just breaks out of his soul as he is seeing and hearing and experiencing the presence of God in a way that he never has. And beloved, the holiness of God will always cause us to despair. Isaiah says, woe is me. It's an impassioned expression of grief and despair. And this is not grief or despair triggered by the thought that his favorite king has died. This is deep grief that Isaiah experiences over his personal sin as it, as it is being exposed in the radiance of God's glory. And then he says, I am lost. What does he mean, I'm lost? He actually means I am ruined. 
I mean, I'm just destroyed in the presence of this king. There's a lot of chatter right now between political parties. They're the woe. They're what's ruining our nation. They're the problem. Those policies are what are killing us. Beloved, what God wants us to come to terms with is that we, in his presence, are culpable of sin. We are the guilty ones. We are the one who bear the woe. It's not about the kingdom of Uzziah that's been lost. It's not the glory days of Israel that have been lost. No, under the weight of Yahweh's holiness, Isaiah collapses and cries, I'm lost. I'm ruined. And the holiness of God not only causes him to despair, but it moves him to repent. Look at the next phrase. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, here's the sole reason that we took time to understand the whole background uh, of that little phrase in the year that King Uzziah died. Do you know the term that Isaiah is employing here when he, when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips? It's the same term that the leper was commanded by God to cry, unclean, unclean. Do you, do you grasp what Isaiah is saying at this moment when he compares himself to this unparalleled, unmatched, holy God? He's like, I'm a leper. It's my lips that are corrupted. We don't know what words he's thinking of, what forms of communication that, that he may have been convicted of at that particular moment, but he recognizes that it's his uncleanness at this moment that, that is the central thing. I wonder if you've ever seen your sin in light of God's holiness. It's easy to compare ourselves one to another. And you don't have to look hard to find somebody else at this moment that you, would, that you or I would estimate is, you know, worse off. Well, I know I have my problems. Nobody's perfect, but that guy, that group, that church. Isaiah's not comparing himself to anyone else. Have you ever seen your sin as so defiling and corrupting that you genuinely believe it's like leprosy. And in the presence of this holy God, Isaiah is not only aware of his uncleanness, but again, look at where he goes next. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's as if Isaiah recognizes that he lives in a colony of lepers. The entire civilization that he's a part of ought to tear its clothes, neglect their hair, cover their lips, and cry in a different kind of antiphonal calling, unclean, unclean, unclean. Oh, that God would bring this nation to that point. But he won't bring the nation to that point until we personally come to that point. At this moment, Isaiah knows, I'm in the wrong place. Like, how can I be here? I, I can't even join my voice with the seraphim. He's so profoundly, painfully aware of his spiritual leprosy that makes him part of a different kind of leper colony. What's your spiritual leprosy this morning? Is it some secret lust? Is it a monstrous greed? Is it pride? Pride that manifests itself in the fact that you've never asked someone for forgiveness because you're never wrong. And even when you know you are, you're still too proud to admit it. Because for some reason, you think you've got to keep up that appearance. It's leprosy. There are probably a thousand specific sins we could list at this moment, but what is your leprosy? All that Isaiah can do at this moment is, 
acknowledge all of this and then look at the next phrase. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see, seeing the king as he is is what creates this infinite gap, as it were, between where Isaiah may have estimated himself to be and where he now realizes he is in comparison to God. The Lord loves Isaiah. There's nothing recorded in Scripture to say that, you know, he was saved out of a life of, you know, wicked immorality. And we some, I mean, those are glorious stories of redemption, but we, we just don't know the details here. But I think that's part of God's wisdom, lest we get caught up in, well, I'm not even like Isaiah. So it's either different for me or he was, he was far worse than I was. No, in comparison to God, there's this infinite gap that opens up between his holiness and our uncleanness. That's what God wants to bring each one of us to. There's evidence everywhere. I don't think we need to spend much time on that this morning, but if you are living in some sort of state of denial, I'm not as bad or or our culture's not as bad, then you have not seen the king. The immorality that just permeates our society, covenantal covenantal unfaithfulness, generations who have indulged in pornography, people who gossip and slander, the vulgar language that flows from our mouths. I mean, those are just some of the easy surface evidences of the corruption that lies underneath. We are unclean. This is our leprosy. But now look at verse six because this is an astonishing turn. Isaiah's just said, I'm ruined. Logically, the next moment should be his absolute destruction. But it's not, is it? No, in verse 6, we read something most remarkable. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, I already read the passage, but just stop right there. Like, put yourself in Isaiah's sandals for a moment. This burning one just lifted a coal from the altar, and he's flying towards you. What would you assume is about to happen? I'm about to be destroyed. It's similar to the account of the appearance of the angelic host to the shepherds on the hills outside of Bethlehem. And I love the way the King James Version puts it that I memorized as a, as a young boy growing up. Suddenly the heavenly host, you know, appeared and the angels were, remember the phrase, sore afraid. Well, that's what happens when unclean people are suddenly in the, in the presence of holiness. And I suspect at this moment Isaiah is like, I'm, I just acknowledge I'm ruined, now I'm dead. But that's not what happens, is it? No, the seraphim flies to him and touches his mouth. Now that's the very place of leprosy he had just acknowledged one moment before. that's That's the unclean part I'm aware of right now. And the seraphim, at the direction of God, touches the very place of leprosy, not to destroy Isaiah, but now has a word of powerful truth for him. And look at this. Look at your Bible. And, and imagine with your, with your sanctified eardrums what these words must have sounded like to Isaiah. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Oh, the guilt that hangs on the prophet like decaying flesh is removed. And the next phrase, your sin atoned for. The sin which separates Isaiah from the holy God is now remedied by the sacrifice of God himself. And he doesn't explain it in its entirety. But when the theme of atonement is developed through the prophecy of Isaiah, it is specifically connected to the death of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The discipline that won our peace fell upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Look at 
That's the atonement. And now the seraphim who should have been dispatched to destroy Isaiah comes and in a merciful, gracious act of sanctifying, cleansing, removes the leprosy from his lips, the real guilt that came from his defiling sin, and now does something extraordinary. Look at the next phrase. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The holy God cleanses this sin-corrupted servant and then asks a question, and Isaiah has the audacity, if you will, to say, here am I. What does that tell you? That tells you that when God actually cleanses your sin and removes the guilt and the atoning work of Jesus Christ is fully operating in your heart, It doesn't matter what's in the rear view mirror. You are qualified, positioned, strengthened by God Almighty to go forward in service. Is there really remedy for our guilt? Oh, yeah. You mean I'm not going to be on spiritual probation the rest of my life? Not when the God of heaven does this kind of work through the blood of his son. You mean God might call me to serve him? Yeah. What mercy. It's audacious, but it's gospel. What gracious, cleansing power. You know, Isaiah was given the privilege of preaching and writing some of the greatest gospel promises in all of Scripture. You say, how do you know that? I know it in part because there's no single prophet from the Old Testament era who's quoted more in the New Testament, including Jesus himself, than Isaiah There's no Old Testament prophet who makes it clearer. Some are right there who makes it clear that the coming Messiah will live and die and rule eternally than Isaiah. And you know, the years of ministry that are ahead of him are hard. I mean, there's some scoundrel kings just around the corner that he's going to have to walk into and say, thus saith the Lord, and it's not going to make him happy. Isaiah not only chronicles the history of four kings but records passages that we love and preach and proclaim to this very day. There are at least 66 quotations of Isaiah in the New Testament. Paul quotes them 19 times in Romans, and we've paused on some of those and and looked at those. It's Isaiah that Jesus Christ preaches in the synagogue of Israel. It's Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading when Philip finds him on that road out of Jerusalem and leads him to salvation. It's Isaiah that Paul quotes as he explains. We were just there, uh, Gospel Hope, last week, Romans 15, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, but verses 20 and 21 are a direct quotation of Isaiah. That's the passage Paul is quoting when he explains why he wants to leave all the familiar surroundings of places like Jerusalem and Asia Minor in order to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. It's Isaiah. And it all began with a vision of God and his glory. We must see God as he is first so that our sin can truly be remedied. But we must see God and know the power of his pardon and the purifying touch that comes from his throne so that we might be powerfully motivated and even comforted for ministry in this day and the days that lie ahead. Only as we see him in his glory will there be any kind of vision or momentum fueled and sustained for the gospel mission we're on. Have you seen the Lord? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you were kind to have Isaiah share it, that you have preserved it forever. Well, would you, would you remove the scales on our eyes that keep us from seeing you as you are, and would you expel from our hearts every rival vision on this day and put the kings and rulers of this world in their proper perspective for us at this moment and put the difficulties of economy and culture in their proper place at this moment. Help us to see you as you are. And whether we actually see you, thank you that you are who you are. Would you take that word, Spirit of God, encourage and strengthen those whose faith is weak this morning? We pray for young and old alike that there would be a profound sense that you are this same God in our generation, that there is great opportunity because there is great cleansing from guilt and there is a great atonement that has been made a great savior who lives before we conclude this service I want you to know that there is an opportunity in the next 20 or 30 minutes for us to have a follow up conversation and if you would like to have a question answered or if there's something else on your heart that you say I need to talk with someone or maybe I could pray with someone the answer is yes you can and I'm just one of those who is present other members of our pastoral team are here Matt, Matt Parker Daniel Kaminsky Lloyd Larkin is our pastor emeritus any one of the four of us would be honored to talk with you and you're among friends there's so many here who also would love to pray with you or open the word and have a follow-up conversation, but please know that that opportunity remains. So, Father, seal to our hearts your word and your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.